welcome to this LSBU Health and Social Care podcast. I'm Professor Warren Turner and I'm Dean Pro Vice-Chancellor of the School of Health and Social Care here at LSBU. And I'm Linda Goddard, Associate Professor in the Department of Mental Health and Learning, Disability Nursing, also here at LSBU. Coming up in this month's podcast. Hear about nursing on the military front line when we speak to Anthony McGrath about his recent experiences as an army reservist working in an army field hospital in Canada. I'll be speaking to LSBU nursing students part-time sabbatical officer Scott Eidson about his role working on behalf of all LSBU nursing students with LSBU Students' Union. Find out about a pioneering project at LSBU where students are helping each other to become more confident with their clinical skills. And finally, Linda and I will be talking about some of the health and social care items that have caught our eyes and ears this month in the news. First, from the early days of the nursing profession, including, of course, Florence Nightingale herself, nurses have played a key role in armed conflict around, conflicts around the world, caring for the sick, injured and dying on the front line. Today, nurses in the reserved armed forces can be deployed into active service, often at short notice, so effective preparation for service is essential for safe and best quality care. LSBU Head of Department of Adult Nursing and Midwifery, Anthony McGrath, is a member of the Army Reserve and has recently returned from a term of service in Canada, setting up and running a field hospital throughout a simulated conflict. Anthony spoke about his experiences earlier. Anthony, tell us a bit about your role with the Army Reserves. How did you first get involved and what interested you about this work? I got involved back in 2002 and I was interested in getting a different perspective on nursing care that was outside of the NHS. So you were a registered nurse at the time? I was a registered nurse at the time, yes. So your last exercise with the Army Reserves involved, uh, was involved with the setting up and running of a field hospital in Canada, wasn't it? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, in September of this year, I did a joint exercise with the Canadian Army um, in which we set up a field hospital in Kingston in Canada, um, which was to allow us to develop our skills in the treatment of a whole range of casualties. What uh, casualties were you finding in that? The scenario that we worked from was based on a humanitarian aid um, scenario, and we were given 350 complex casualties to deal with over a four-day period. This involved um, patients who had suffered injury following the aftershock of a, an earthquake to people who had, um, had simple cardiac arrest to people um, giving birth. So a whole range of clinical scenarios that we had to deal with. So it was essentially a, a large-scale simulation exercise? It was a, it was a large-scale simulation exercise that had, um, as I said previously, 350 scenarios that we dealt with. Um, and what was your role in, in the exercise? My role was the senior nursing officer, so um, I worked very closely with the medical director and we managed the hospital facility and we coordinated the, the admission discharge and transfer of patients. And, and which of your nursing skills did you get to draw on during the exercise? Um, I got to draw on my clinical decision making. I got to draw on my leadership skills and I got to draw on my um, skills of coping with adverse conditions. 
And I, I assume you didn't know too much about the scenario or the simulation until you got there. So what, what were the biggest challenges you faced as the scenario unfolded? The biggest challenges we faced were um, the unknown, um, because we weren't we were unsure as to what kind of casualties were going to come through the hospital. Um, the weather was a, a big issue because it rained a lot, and the complexity of the, of the cases that we were going to deal with were also the unknown quantity. And how is working as a nurse in the Army Reserve? any different from nursing in a regular hospital or community setting? In the fundamentals, there is no real difference. You're, you carry out nursing care in the same way as you would anywhere else. The differences are, are however, in, in that you don't work in a hospital. You work either from a tent or you may work from a container and you're more mobile. You work in areas where there may not be good sanitation, so um, toilets, um, infection control, all of those things have to be put into place in order for us to care, to care for people. Okay. And if anyone listening to this is interested in finding out more about work with the armed forces, where can they go for information? Um, the Army have a very, very good website that people can actually um, look up and find out about the local reserve centre. Or if people want to find out information about the reserves in this area, I'm very happy to speak to them. Anthony, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Anthony McGrath speaking to me earlier. As I was listening to that, Linda, and listening to Anthony's description of the 350 casualties, simulated casualties, mm. I thought, what a fantastic learning opportunity, whether you're an undergraduate or, or a postgraduate, or indeed Anthony as a head of department. Great opportunity, isn't it? Absolutely. I think um, I was struck by the challenges that the students or the people being there would face. And, and you could imagine taking our students into that kind of scenario, the uh, the unknown, having to work in adverse weather conditions and the complex case scenarios that they would be faced with. And I think it would really, uh, I think students would gain an enormous amount from a situation like that. Yeah. And the key message for me was nursing is nursing wherever it is and that you adapt to your environment, whether that's a tent or a, a container vehicle or, or indeed a, an acute, big acute hospital. Indeed. I think often people think nursing, and the general public think nursing is uh, about hospitals, but there are thousands of nurses around the world who care for people, who nurse people in their homes and in many different environments that we need to be more aware of, I think. So how were you as a student, Linda? Did you enjoy being a student? Well, <laughs> interesting times, Warren. Um, I think I enjoyed being a student in different areas. I was a student in a hospital situation, uh -huh. but I was also a student at university, and most of my um, study was in distance distance education mode. So wow. very, different, yeah, very different, very different approach to here. And, and gaining a, a, a renewed interest now, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. And were you an active member of your students' union? No, no. Um, in the hospital, we didn't have one. And in the university, they did have one. Yeah. However, because I studied at a distance, then we would only go to the uni twice a year. And the, the nearest we got to the union was the bar, really. <laughs> a bit like me. Although I did run a Friday night disco from time to time for my fellow students. Nice. But we're going we're to hear now, though, from Scott 
Scott Eidson, who is a second year children's nursing student and is current nursing student sabbatical officer with LSBU Student Union. Scott's working really hard to provide ways for nursing students at LSBU to engage with the Students' Union. Let's hear from Scott now. I'm with Scott Eidson now, and Scott is the nursing officer from London South Bank Students' Union. Hi, Scott. Hi, lovely to be here, Warren. Well, Scott, thanks for joining me. I just thought it'd be good if you could just talk a bit about your role with the Student Union and, and what specifically it is you're hoping to do. Are you in this role for one year? Is for that... one year, yes. One year. So what is it you want to achieve in your year? Um, so it's a part-time officer role, which means we do it on top of our studies. I'm a children's nursing student. Um, and it's quite a unique role to South Bank. Um, we have lots of nurses at South Bank, a large yeah. proportion, a lot more than some other universities, which is quite unique. And um, to tie in with that, we have a nursing students officer. So I'm here to make sure that I represent the views of all the nursing students at South Bank, and whether they're pre-reg, post-reg, doing um, CPD courses, um, all of them nurses, and it makes up quite a big number. Mm. Um, and obviously, as nurses, we have quite different student experiences to what students on other courses have in terms of timetabling, in terms of, of course, placements, and... Yeah, it's just to really represent them differences and make sure that the university and student union listen to what we have to say and what matters. So, so what sort of issues are, are your uh, fellow students bringing to you? Is, is it mostly when they've got problems they can't resolve or is it about ways that they see that they, you, you can help them make things better for everybody? Um, it's a bit of both, really. For me, the key issue that I kind of picked up when I was looking to be elected in the first place was that, obviously... Like, as I pointed out earlier, student nurses have very different experiences. Mm-hmm. And as that, they don't really participate and engage with university processes and student union processes, everything down to understanding how university works with semesters and things like that, because they're not the traditional university student in that way, in the way that we have a lot of mature students, a lot of students that have come from um, different backgrounds and not typically through the A-level and level three courses. And also um, in the students' union, even getting involved in things like societies and sports clubs. Obviously, lots of, like, the football club, that's open to people of all courses, but what we found in the past is that nursing students don't engage with them, like, don't get involved in these things. Uh, do you think that's because they're, they're so busy or that there are other, other demands on their time? Why is it that nursing students particularly haven't traditionally got involved quite so much in those societies? Of course it's to do with busyness as well, but I think the we haven't really in the past engaged with them nursing students and understood their needs and kind of adapted the activities to suit. Um, so one of the things I've been doing, for example, is meeting with the events coordinator at the Students' Union because we were running an events um, that n- nursing students could attend that weren't really at the right times and on the right days and at the right times of year for nursing students to attend. So, for example, this year we had um, nurses freshers. Um, yeah. So nurses the ones who are staying in halls anyway, move in typically the weekend before everybody else yeah, does because yeah. um, we start our courses earlier. And really, they were hanging about waiting for freshers to start. So this year, we were really good. I was there on the move-in weekend and we took them bowling and things. We had, I think, 90 nurses turn up for bowling at Elephant and Castle, Fantastic. walked down and yeah, and we went out for social events after and things. It was really, really good. So, so, so what sort of things now that this, that particularly freshers have, have hopefully settled in a bit now, but what kinds of things are, are nursing students telling you they would like to do that, as things that are above and beyond what the course is covering? Um, I think 
a lot of them really wanted some way to get involved in the things I mentioned before, societies and sports yeah. clubs. So that's an ongoing thing for me. So one thing I've took upon myself is to set up the nursing society that again this year, and it's going to do things that nurses want. Um, so we've had things from just social events, social events that they can attend that on during placement times, um, or on different days, so it's not always the same day, so they can fit it around shifts. Scott, I hear you're standing for election. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and what that means? Yeah. I am. So um, obviously I'm the nursing students officer, but every year in the autumn elections we um, elect the NUS delegates. So every year the National Union of Students, NUS, has a conference and each union, students' union, gets a certain quarter of delegates they can take along. And for us that's five. So we have the president who automatically fills a place, then we have four more places, and then places are open to everybody. Everybody could nominate themselves, um, not just people who are already involved. And there's quite a rigorous election process, really. So I think for four places, we have 12 candidates um, who are all standing to to go. We had to write a short 200-word manifesto. And for me, I think, as, an, as a side, NUS doesn't do a very good job of listening to student nurses, and we're quite a key mm. demographic. But obviously, we have very different experiences to... I keep using the word conventional, yeah. but students, but people on um, t- courses are typically run to university like years and things. And we have very different experiences and I don't think they're really engaging with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really hoping to be elected, to go along and kind of put nursing on the agenda, really. I mean, I think just, just after this podcast goes out, the, I think the Chancellor is due to announce in the autumn statement the spending review outcomes. And, and one of the possibilities, you know, I think could be that funding for nursing students and other health students might change, and that might mean them covering a proportion of their fee themselves. What impact do you think that would have on, on our students if that was to affect them? I mean, it will affect future students rather than current students, but what, what impact can you see of, of any decision to shift that burden of funding from the NHS to students? It would be about 9,000 a year, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, I think it would have a great, massive effect, really. Um, some people, if you talk to the typical person who's not going, looking to go into nursing, they say, oh, why are you going into nursing? Like, what's in it for you? It's, it's difficult, long hours and things, but obviously our nurses are really passionate about going into nursing and really want to do it. And I just want to make sure that there isn't another step in the way that can put them off. So if it's 9,000 a year, that's £27,000 worth of debt to kind of... And we all... To kind of pay off once we qualify and we all know about nurses' wages and things like that. And, yeah, I think it would definitely have an effect, especially since if it was affected things like bursaries and grants as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of student nurses are already struggling to, mm-hmm. to get by financially. Under, like, there's a lot of stresses and strains there, mainly due to the fact that we can't necessarily have part-time jobs during our courses. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily because of the working hours, but to hold down a part-time job, you can't necessarily do it during placement hours, so you have to kind of find a really, really great employer who would employ you for the six weeks you're at placement or over the holidays and things like that. So we can't necessarily have that like other students can. So we're already at a disadvantage. Um, and I think especially another point when we're talking about dwindling workforce numbers in the NHS generally and the government having to change the policy regarding bringing in foreign nurses and how it's now on the list of shortage professionals. Shortage professionals. Um, 
things like that. Obviously, there's the demand there for nurses, and this sort of move isn't going to do anything to encourage them. Well, I hope George Osborne has been talking to people with similar views to you. We'll find out, I think, about the 25th of November. So this time next week, or just after this podcast goes out. So maybe we'll be discussing this again in December. Scott, thanks for your time. Really great. And best of luck with your election and best of luck with your sabbatical role. Thank you very much, Warren. That was me talking to Scott earlier. It was really great talking to Scotland. It made me realise there are so many issues, actually, at the moment for the students and the Students' Union to be dealing with, both in terms of getting our students more engaged, not just in their studies as student nurses, but also in the broader life of the university, what it means to be a student and having an experience that looks more like a typical university student experience. But also the politics quite complicated at the moment, and I think Scott's quite keen to get more involved in the politics around things like the tuition fees issue. But it gives me um, great reason to be optimistic about the future of nursing, talking to people like him. Absolutely. I think um, it's lovely to have uh, young people like Scott. And I like the fact that he he raised the issues that students face today and the issues of the, related to um, being mature-age students, having families, different mm. cultural backgrounds, uh, older students. I think that it's really important that as a university we really embrace the fact that we're not catering for 18-year-olds anymore. And people who come into nursing come from an incredibly varied background, particularly when you look at some of the cultural issues with our students. So it was great that Scott raised that, and certainly being a newcomer to England, it's something that I think about quite often. I mean, the diversity of the student body is growing all the time. Mm. I I think at the moment over half, more than 50% of our students are... Uh, from BME backgrounds, mm-hmm. about 35% of them are over the age of 25. So it's a hugely diverse population, probably a bit different to your school leaver, traditional university entrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the role of the student union is going to be really important in terms of trying to more um, effectively engage them in university life because they'll probably want very different things from mm-hmm. the traditional uh, 18-year-old university entrant. Absolutely, and and it makes me think of Australia. I've been I've worked in a university in Australia in a rural area, and the average age of our students was twenty seven, yeah. and uh, there were probably two point one children per student, <laughs> um, and we also found that students didn't engage with the student union, and mainly because they were juggling so much, and yeah, I think yeah. that our students are juggling an enormous amount. Yeah. Um, and finance has been a big one and if they live away from the university to get back for anything the student union puts on is something and coming from Australia did the tuition fees issue resonate with you because there are tuition tuition fees have been present for quite a long time in Australia for nurses haven't Absolutely. they um, and, and we're I think just embarking I suspect on a period where our students, nursing students and, and indeed other health students in, in the UK will have to pay some form of tuition fee, which is new to them, not to the rest of the university, of course, but certainly to them. Uh, what was your experience of, of tuition fees in Australia? Uh, obviously, there was an uproar when they came in. Um, however, they were less than, for nursing and education, they were less than other courses because they were deemed to be courses that we really needed and where there was a shortage. And although there may have been a decrease initially, um, over time there has always been a great demand for, um, you know, 
places in the area of nursing. People see nursing and education, I think, as two key areas uh, where they can get a profession that is lifelong and guaranteed work. And I, I like Scott's ideas for organising events and bringing in inspiring speakers and, and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, we're hosting debates and things and trying to get students engaged with that, but there's nothing like having a fantastic speaker or somebody to come and inspire you, is there? Yeah, yeah. I was talking to a student today, actually. We have a new lecturer in the area of mental health and um, I spoke to the students about how things were going and I, I listening to this lecturer talk is, is yeah. inspirational and the students are absolutely overjoyed at having somebody who is really interested in them, engaged them and really knows their stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's excellent. That's great. Well, thanks, Scott. That's great. And we'll be hearing from Scott again in a future podcast, hopefully. Um, if you're a student at LSBU studying nursing or allied health and you would like to um, record uh, perhaps your own piece to be included in a future podcast, um, then you can contact me directly and we'll uh, try and arrange for you to do that. That'd be great. Students can struggle sometimes with developing their clinical skills to a level where they are confident with the basic skills they will need for their placements. One of the ways we are supporting skill development is through provision of peer-supported skills development sessions, students helping each other. Associate Professor for Clinical Skills and Simulation, Gary Francis, has developed a training program for clinical skills peer tutors and is piloting their role in supporting their fellow students to develop basic clinical skills. We spoke to Gary and some of the first clinical skills peer tutors earlier. Okay, so I've come down to our clinical skills labs to meet with Gary Francis, Associate Professor in Clinical Skills and Simulation, and some of the clinical skills peer tutors who are part of a new project around peer tutoring. Hello, Gary. Could you tell us something about the clinical skills peer tutor role? Yes, um, thank you, Warren. Um, so we started to think about the clinical skills peer tutor role as a well, as twofold really. One, as a way of engaging our second year students, uh, as sometimes um, um, after all of the furore of starting in the first year and then wrapping up in the third year, we wanted to give our second year students something to sort of give them something to do, something in addition. And for those students who particularly show uh, uh, aptitude for clinical skills, something to stretch them. But we also wanted to sort of make sure that um, this sort of works well to develop the peer tutors. And we're particularly interested in what additional skills we can give the peer tutors to perhaps enhance employability, give them perhaps more enhanced communication skills, and really try and and, and develop them as individuals. We also want to obviously have uh, an impact on... uh, um, students themselves, so the learning students, so first-year students who will be learning clinical skills, we're particularly focusing on uh, physiological observations because this is something which we do in class and we do well, but it's something which often requires a lot of practice and to be revisited in order to get competence and, and proficiency at the skill. So we're, we're really looking at that, and of course that has a huge benefit on patient safety and um, post-qualifying uh, experience as well. 
So essentially, the peer tutors are students themselves, and they are supporting other students developing clinical skills. How, how are you preparing them yeah. for that? So um, we've we've had a we've had um, two um, um, uh, training days. So one was um, conducted by the uh, student centre, which looked at uh, facilitation, peer mentoring. Uh, group communications and, and other things around sort of supporting learners. And the second uh, training day has been with me, where we've basically run through the syllabus that we are going to be working with as, as peer tutors, but also we've had plenty of opportunity over the day to practice our skills in taking manual blood pressure, understanding all the different equipments that are used in, in taking observations. And then since then, we will have had opportunity to practice uh, uh, the manual blood pressure because that is often the skill that students struggle with the most. And the peer tutors have taken home a sphygmomanometer and a stethoscope and are practicing that currently. And then what we're going to do is we're then going to do some supervised uh, practice around uh, supporting the peer tutors so that they're ready to then be uh, supporting the students. Fantastic. And we're joined now by um, three, in fact, of our peer tutors. How many have we got in total, Gary? We've got six. We've got six. So we've got half of the cohort with us today. Um, we've got Moeen Khan, who's a second-year children's nurse, Daniel Salbang, who's a second-year mental health nursing student, and Ross Taylor, uh, second-year adult nurse. Hi, Moen, can you, can you tell us what it's been like from your perspective so far? What's your experience been as a clinical skills peer tutor? Um, so, so far it's mainly been about sort of figuring out what we can offer students, um, but a lot of it has been thinking, why am I in this, um, what's it for? And, and for me, it's sort of almost gaining confidence in um, clinical skills myself um, and sort of how I can sort of teach that, for just for sort of um, how I'd use that in the future, you know, becoming a nurse, um, inevitably I'd be teaching myself. Um, and so, you know, having those sessions, those training sessions so far, um, has really sort of developed those teaching skills that I will use in the future. Great. So what made you decide to volunteer for the role? Um, it's almost sort of... Or where you volunteered? <laughs> a bit of both, really. But, you know, I, you know it, was, it seemed like a really interesting idea. It's about sort of um, getting your name out there, almost, um, and just sort of helping other students. And that's something I'm really, really interested in, sort of developing services at the university, um, that you know will hopefully sort of develop in the future, and just to give students more opportunity. Great, and Daniel, how how do other students receive your input? Um, I mean, we haven't really seen any other students as of yet. It's not been set up. Um, the plan will be that they'll uh, we'll have appointments set on certain days, and they can contact us through the email, um, and then. One or more of the six will attend the day and uh, we'll teach the physical observation. Um, we think it will go well because there can be pressure when a teacher is teaching you one yeah. of the skills, whereas if it's a student on a student, it should feel less scary because obs are scary when you don't know how to do them. Um, but yeah, it's undecided as of yet. We don't really know how it's going to go. And, and Ross, presumably, as you're going to be teaching these clinical skills, you've got to have them absolutely crack perfect every time. Are you confident that you've been well prepared? Um, I think so, yeah. I think we, on our first session where we actually did practical skills, um, we ironed out a lot of things that we, either we were doing wrong or we weren't quite doing, you know, to the required standard. And um, what, as we've been given the, um, 
the equipment to take home practice. Hopefully by the time it comes around to doing our next session, we should have them well practiced and we should be good to you know, have them done perfectly. Thanks, Ross. Well, well, Martin Weller, who's a clinical skills technician down in the labs, is, Martin, you're going to help administer some of the arrangements around this. How do you see it working in the longer term? Um, I think it's a really exciting time for clinical skills. Uh, we're always developing um, all the time, so um, I think the guys uh, are going to do quite well with uh, the equipment that we're going to offer them, so uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. Right, okay. Thanks, guys. Well, really exciting project. Gary, what are your hopes for the future? I mean, it's a small-scale project at the moment, so where do you see it developing from here? Yes, yeah, so this is essentially the trial of the project with a small number of students. So as we go through what over the next year we want to sort of evaluate its impact, and certainly the early indications are that this would be very well received by students and indeed by our practice partners as a way of help preparing um, our students to the standards that are required. Um, certainly, um, it is my ambition that we would want to develop this and grow this so that this becomes a real selling point for students and a real opportunity for students to gain additional skills and actually be part of our culture of teaching and learning at LSBU. Great project there from Gary um, Francis and our clinical skills peer tutors. As I was listening to that, Linda, I was thinking, as I, I, I wasn't necessarily a, a fast developer when it came to clinical skills, I suppose took a bit longer than most to gain some of those more dexterous skills, um, and I actually think it would have been great for me to be able to go to my mates, can you show me how to do that, rather than have to ask a tutor, to, uh, you know, an academic tutor to, to tell me. Yeah, yeah, same, look, I remembering to learn... Remember learning to take blood pressures and having very sore ears from the amount of time that you had to practice to actually hear that thud, thud, thud. Um, we too, where I've worked, we opened our labs at different times and had third year students and it's such a successful program and students can, you know, say, oh, I don't know, I need help and not feel that they're going to fail and that they haven't to go to the lecture. It's a great initiative. And I think it's brilliant for, for, this, for the clinical skills peer tutors as well to get those, ex, those skills in teaching, training other people how to do skills as well as perfecting their own. I mean, that's a really brilliant value added, isn't it, by the time they come out of the course. Absolutely. And in time, we want them to be the clinical mentors out there in the workforce. So to start practising now is good. We do. Fantastic. Well done, Gary. We look forward to hearing about that pilot study, and I'm sure we'll be featuring more uh, about that as, as the study continues. And good luck to all the clinical skills peer tutors. So as ever, it's been a packed month full of health stories in the news this month. Linda, what's caught your eyes and ears? Okay, well, Claire Murdoch has sent a, an open letter into The Guardian where she talks about the NHS facing the greatest financial challenge in its history. They talk, she talks about how nationally mental ill health currently accounts for more than 25% of the total disease burden in society. But mental health services receive less than half that proportion of NHS funding and the amount that goes into mental health is falling. And you've only got to look at some of the other articles that we've come across this week. Mental health, health 
early deaths are worrying in one one in four areas people are dying 10 years earlier when they have mental health issues uh, 5 million prescriptions for antidepressants in London every year and that's in that's London just in alone. London yeah and finally another article talks about children waiting six months to even be assessed for a mental health condition and we actually know that early intervention is one of the key issues you know if we if we intervene early get people the help that they require then they'll get better sooner i wonder whether it's just a a crisis of funding or is it also a crisis that we just don't have the people in place to provide the services we're not are we not training enough mental health nurses or specialists okay but i would say that we are educating mm-hmm. a lot of mental health nurses um, I believe that we need to look at where those mental health nurses should be working. I'm a, I'm a little bit alarmed when students say, I want to work in a hospital when I finish, when in fact the hospitals have all closed and we're looking at less hospitals and wards in general hospitals where they're going to work. And I think yeah. the future should be about um, early intervention. And maybe if we had mental health nurses in every GP practice to do assessments, mental health assessments, to assist the GP make an early diagnosis of early treatment, it might make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. There was also a big story, I think, this month. I think you've got it there somewhere around moving uh, learning disability patients out of uh, hospitals um, into the community. Well, people with learning disabilities have been steadily moving out of the large institutions. In fact, most moved out 20 years ago. And there are still 2,600 hospital beds for people with learning disabilities. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they do need to close, but I think I think the other side of that coin is where are people going to live? Yeah. And wherever they live, they shouldn't be isolated. They should have access to good care because I suspect that many of the people still living in hospitals are those with highly complex healthcare needs. So they need our learning disability nurses. Yeah. They also need nurses who've got experience in mental health and learning disabilities to ensure that their needs are really addressed so they're safe and they're not just going to come out of hospital and uh, be hidden away in group homes, isolated in communities with carers. A couple of things caught my eye this this month. Um, First of all, and probably top in the news, certainly today, because as we're recording this, the the results of this ballot have just come in. So... um, 30-odd thousand junior doctors have been balloted by the BMA on strike action around the imposition of the new junior doctor's contract. And 98% of them, amazing response, 98% have voted in favour of strike action. And that was a 76% response to that ballot. So 76% of those who were eligible to take part took part. So that seems like a phenomenal majority. It's an enormous number of people. It, it just tells us how important this issue is to the doctors, yeah. junior doctors. So we wait and see what happens there. So, but strikes now um, scheduled to take place starting on the 1st of December, uh, where that, and, and that on that date, junior doctors are only going to be providing emergency care. And then full strikes on the 8th and the 16th of December if resolutions aren't agreed by then. So rather worrying. A little bit more positive, 
some really good news stories. I'm really pleased to hear this, Linda, but drinking champagne will stop you getting dementia. That's a claim made in uh, a number of newspapers this month. And also five cups of coffee every day might help you live longer. What do you think of that? I think that sounds wonderful with lots of water in between. Uh, It's nice to think that we can live longer. Um, the sad um, thing, though, I have to say, just before you get reaching from the champagne, popping those champagne corks, is The Guardian ran an article debunking the myth, <laughs> what they're calling a myth, that drinking champagne stops you getting dementia, unless you're a rat. <laughs> <laughs> because the study that was uh, used in this article, um, was conducted by the University of Reading three years ago, just resurfaced through social media and it's been picked up by the... Um, the press um, was based on on rats just 24 rats and these rats were put into uh, three groups of eight the luckiest group got champagne (laughs) the others got various other uh, things and they compared the ability of rats to navigate their way through a maze and those that had the champagne did a bit better than the rest so it's amazing that people could extrapolate that to Drinking champagne Indeed. Will help you <laughs> avoid Indeed. Dementia. The other thing, of course, is that champagne is a bit of a depressant. So, you know, even if you hit the champagne bottle too too much, then you might requ- find yourself in need of um, antidepressants and join the other five million people in London yeah. who've... Uh, is there anything else that you've picked up in the, the press? Pauline Kafferke, the British nurse who contracted Ebola, makes a full recovery for the second time. Fantastic. Um, It was lovely last week to go to the Nursing Times Award and to see that the team, the team award went to the group who who cared for Pauline. Yeah, absolutely. That was lovely lovely to see. And of course, Pauline is forever thankful for that team at the Royal Free Hospital. It was beautiful. It was beautiful to see um, that presentation. And uh, and to also see that um, Pauline has recovered for the second time. And I, I remember seeing something, I thought it was this week, that a baby, the last baby with Ebola, has recovered. Good. That good. was in The Guardian yeah, this yeah, morning, yeah. actually. Fantastic. Yeah. Gosh, so it's been a busy news month. Um, and who knows what December holds. Let's look at that next time. That's exactly right. Linda, thanks. You've been a fantastic co host. It's been great fun. It's gone very quickly. Um, next month uh, who can say well who knows what's going to be in the news next month but within this podcast next month we will be uh, reporting on uh, the stop the pressure conference that our students have organized taking place in central london actually tomorrow as we're recording this on the 20th of november um, they've filled central westminster hall with 600 every ticket's gone 600 people coming to that conference so i'll be talking to the student organisers of that conference tomorrow and we'll, we'll be reporting back from them next month. So until then, it's goodbye from me, Warren Turner. And it's goodbye from me, Linda Goddard. <laughs>